You're listening to the Anesthesia Patient Safety Podcast, the official podcast of the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation. We're bringing you the very best from the APSF newsletter and website, as well as the latest information in perioperative patient safety. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to the Anesthesia Patient Safety Podcast. My name is Allie Bechtel, and I'm your host. Thank you for joining us for another show. We hope that you tuned in last week for our first interview with an anesthesia patient safety expert here on this podcast. We talked with Dr. Alan Mary, a professor and anesthetist at Auckland City Hospital, about practicing anesthesia in New Zealand, medication safety, simulation, and wall-mounted surgical safety checklists and migrated leadership. We are back today with more of my conversation with Dr. Mary. So go ahead and refresh your cup of coffee or tea and get comfortable. Before we dive into the episode today, we'd like to recognize Massimo, a major corporate supporter of APSF. Massimo has generously provided unrestricted support to further our vision that no one shall be harmed by anesthesia care. Thank you, Massimo. We wouldn't be able to do all that we do without you. And now, back to the interview. Now, in this modern day of anesthesia and clinical practice, there's a lot of demands on uh, time for our trainees and um, practicing uh, anesthesia professionals, as well as um, the financial cost. But what do you see as the most important role for simulation in training for uh, trainees, as well as experienced anesthesia professionals? I think there's essentially two fundamental um, types of simulation. One is skill training. And you know that Dr. Paul Baker, for example, has developed an amazing simulator for fiber optic intubation. Really is very impressive. And that allows people to practice and learn using what feels like a real fiber optic learning scope, that sort of skill before they actually try to use it on a patient. And so that sort of skill-based training, which is used by surgeons, for example, in, uh, in endoscopic surgery, uh, and even things like, for me as a pain doctor who um, I've done procedures uh, putting in um, spinal cord stimulators, actually going to a laboratory and learning suturing in a what is effectively simulated uh, environment. That sort of skill training is very important, and we need to use it more. But the but my own interest has, of course, been in the other side of training, which is about it's really human factors and communication. So training people how to how to function, and it's not all about crises. You know, one of the things that we've done quite a lot of is get people to simulate the whole anaesthetic. There's a sort of idea that you throw it into the middle of a crisis without actually having got gone through putting the patient to sleep or even seeing the patient in the preoperative area. And I think just getting people to to do that and learn through reflective training, the, it's the debriefings that are so important. Uh, I think that's that really needs to be increased. 
We are trying to get hospitals to see this in-situ simulation of the entire team as business as normal. And there's, there's a certain amount of support for it, but unfortunately we run perpetually run into the idea that this is expensive. To take a team out of the operating room for half a day or better still a whole day, we always get asked, well, that's going to mean we can't operate on patients on that day. And there's, you know, we're behind on our waiting lists and we, we don't have the resource. In fact, I'm absolutely convinced that the net effect on productivity is positive. And we, the, the airlines do it. They absolutely do it. You wouldn't, airline pilots, I understand, do simulation twice a year. So for us to do it, say, once a year, uh, every person is not a big ask. And it should be integral. It seems like one of those things that if we just did it, just like the airline pilots say, once a year, this is a requirement and an expected thing, then and it will lead to improvements in efficiency too, as the team learns to work better together, as well as patient safety. Exactly. Now, you also mentioned that you spent some time as the chair of the Board of New Zealand Health Quality and Safety Commission. So I just wanted to... um, see what your kind of biggest takeaway from your time as the chair was there. Well, what it really taught me was that uh, within New Zealand's healthcare structure, anesthesia is really the least of its problems. We have one of the safest anesthesia systems in the world. I'm really convinced of that. And although I believe that's partly because of the commitment of many people towards improving it over the years, and that needs to continue, our real problems don't lie there. And I think that's likely true in in many other countries, like the US, for example, because the problems are much more around uh, primary health care, population health, if you like, access to health care. And, you know, in a way, it's getting the people who need surgery to surgery is a much bigger issue than how they manage when they actually get there. Because what happens in surgery and anesthesia in New Zealand is very high standard. So it's really that sort of situation. And, of course, in particular, uh, in New Zealand, uh, around about 16% of our population uh, is Māori, who are our Indigenous people or Tangata Whenua. And New Zealand actually was established with a treaty called the Treaty of Waitangi, as, as, as you may well know. And as with all countries, there is, unfortunately, ongoing inequity in the health outcomes including expectation of life longevity, there's about a seven-year gap between Māori expectation and uh, Pākehā, the rest of us, uh, our expectations. And that's really where the priority is for um, investment and improving outcomes of healthcare, which is an interesting tension because that doesn't mean that you don't need to maintain the excellent surgery and anesthesia. You do. It's just that they are excellent. They need to be maintained. But actually, the place where we need to be investing is elsewhere. What do you envision for the way to go forward to improve that um, discrepancy in health equality? I think the, the, the it, it does come down to. Uh, more investment in what you might call population health type initiatives. Saying again, though, that that can't be at the expense of of the secondary tertiary services. They are required. Uh, But the problem you might have noticed that we've had over the last 
couple of years is the COVID pandemic, which has actually become a huge distraction. Interestingly, I heard uh, Professor uh, uh, Jackson talking on the uh, phone, on the uh, radio. Our amenable mortality is down generally. So our mortality from all causes, if you like, has been down in New Zealand the last couple of years, which is surprising because you would have thought it might go up because of the impact of COVID on the healthcare services. But it has been, it's just preoccupied the government, it's taken resource, it's actually reduced our ability to address these issues. And in fact, it itself has been a cause of inequity because Maori have done worse with COVID than other groups. I think the current government does have a commitment to these things, but it's currently distracted. And I think we've just got to get past that. And on the big big picture, politically, of course, we're talking on a day when the Ukraine has just been invaded. And what that's going to do internationally to uh, economies and, and, and the world stability, I'm really not sure. But it's interesting, going back to what you learn when you're in the role that I was in, is it's these big picture issues that make a big difference to to healthcare. Uh, one of the one of the things that's fantastic in New Zealand, if I may say so, I, I often I am intrigued. We have very good health outcomes, and we actually are not as rich as some of the other countries where overall we do better. So, for example, the GDP in New Zealand is way lower than the GDP in the United States. And our per capita expenditure on healthcare is something like a third of what is spent in the United States. And yet overall, we generally get equivalent or better health outcomes. And there are a number of reasons for that, of course. But there is one thing that we have in New Zealand, which I think is an amazing uh, advantage, and that is very, very low corruption. There is a rating of corruptions by um, um, Transparency International, I think it's called. And we are always in the top two, usually Thai with a Scandinavian country, I think Finland probably. Uh, But that just means that we don't waste money on corruption. It's actually well used, it's well directed, and it's it's thoughtfully used as well. And that is at the core of good healthcare, is actually not just throwing money at problems, but doing it, making sure the money gets to where it needs to be, that it is spent properly, and that it's well thought through. I don't know how you found the anesthesia theatres. My observation is our theatres are very well um, uh, equipped, but they're also very well set up. A lot of thought has generally been put into the layout, and and there's not excess equipment. There's what you need, and it's well laid out. Has that been your experience? That has absolutely been my experience. Now, at Tainakau Hospital, it's a new hospital too, so it's kind of nice coming in um, and getting to work in a brand new hospital. The theatres are quite large. in the anesthesia workspace does not seem like a last minute thought. There's plenty of room for the cart and the machine for myself and the anesthetic tech and the, and we can easily reach the patient too. So it's really been great. And I agree with you, you know, we have all of the equipment that we would need to provide standard care as well as emergency care and have our safety backups in place, but there's not a lot of wasted equipment either. We're not getting out a lot of extra stuff just to have it available. And so it really does feel like we're kind of using what we need. We have all of the emergency equipment we need, but we're not wasting it. 
Now, another thing I was really interested to see when I was looking through kind of your CV online is that you've done some work with the Lifebox group. So how did you get involved uh, with Lifebox? And what do you hope to see like with that organization going forward? So Lifebox really, its origins come from the Global Oximetry Project, which was started by the World Federation of Societies of Anesthesiologists. I was actually chair of the, I think it was called the Quality and Safety Committee, or the Safety and Quality Committee, I can't remember, of WFSA. And we held a workshop in Paris in the World Congress. We were doing one of those exercises of making a list on a whiteboard with about 100 people in the room of what might be good things to concentrate on. And someone in the audience who I uh, didn't identify who it was, and uh, I, I don't know is the answer, said, you know, there are a lot of operating rooms in the world that don't have a, an oximeter. You should do something about that. So we wrote it down, and then actually we chose that as the one to, to start on. And there were a bunch of people involved there, uh, Dr. Ian Wilson, Dr. Gavin Toms, Dr. Isabel Walker, myself, uh, that formed this next movement, which was the Global Oximetry Project. And we did a project in uh, three or four countries as proof of concept, which is published in Anesthesia. And we, around about the same time, I was asked to be the anesthesia lead for the uh, WHO um, uh, checklist project. Well, it wasn't, it was a, Global, it was a it was a surgical safety initiative which led to the checklist, and in that I met Atul Gawande and got to know him. And at the end of that process, we sort of reached a point with the Global Oximetry Project where it was a question of how to take it further, and it had actually informed some of the things on the checklist. You know, the originally the checklist did include having a pulse oximeter on the patient as a key item, and that was targeting the parts of the world that don't have an oximeter. And uh, I asked Atul if he would take over the leadership of this project because he was obviously a fantastic leader. And uh, at that time, or soon after, I read it as one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time magazine. And he did. And so that carried on a year or so more. And then from there, the decision was made to establish an independent charity, Lifebox. So I was actually one of the the directors of the of, of Lifebox from the very beginning and have been part of it right through. Uh, where is it going? Well, it's still got a very strong emphasis on anesthesia safety and on oximetry. Of course, with COVID, it was able to, uh, the, the catch word is pivot, but it really did do well. Chris Torgerson, our CEO, did a fantastic job of responding to the opportunity and we extended oximetry supply to beyond the operating room to anybody who needed it. But, uh, you know, um, increasingly we've started, the objective has always been improving the standard of surgery and anesthesia in low-income parts of the world. And then now with the Clean Cut Project, which is about uh, improving sterile, reducing surgical infection, uh, being a strong part of what's going on, there's work in developing a, a affordable surgical light, uh, headlight that, that, that people can use. And we just, the, the organization is going from strength to strength. It's really interesting too, how you were able to start from just a whiteboard, talking about pulse oximetry use, 
in operating in low income countries who who weren't using that routinely because for us you know that's just one of kind of our routine standard monitors and then from there to even be able to transition to okay well what what else do we need to do to improve patient safety in these areas as well and the checklist and sterility and even just having a surgical light is just so great to be able to scale that up and see what else is needed too getting back to the earlier comments about healthcare in general you know um one of the things that has struck me about trying to improve, help to improve um, healthcare in, in many different parts of the world, uh, the real core cause problem in many places is actually government corruption. Uh, you know, and one of the challenges, and we have always tried to do this, this advocacy side, but it's been the hardest thing to do. And in fact, you can't get very far advocating if, if there's intrinsic corruption because it's it's just a political problem. The other thing, by the way, that is unbelievably bad for healthcare is war. And, you know, more people die actually as secondary consequences of disrupted healthcare than die from being shot or bombed. And what's happening in, in today is just the biggest tragedy in recent times. I just can't believe how bad that is. We went from the pandemic, pandemic and now war, and it just seems unbelievable. And Yes. Uh, the world is actually in a very um, uncertain moment at the moment, right now. It's quite worrying. So we have our the authors of the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation newsletter articles will sometimes submit uh, clips for the podcast too. And so I always like to ask them, what do they envision for the future with regards to anesthesia patient safety? And um, so what do you envision for the future? So I am very positive about the safety and quality of anesthesia in our part of the world and indeed in most high-income countries. I, I, I think partly through the individuals that are involved with it and partly through the organisations such as our college and our society in New Zealand and in Australia's society, uh, I think we are well established to build on the strengths that are manifestly very good and just continue to, to uh, provide excellent services. The real challenge is, is, is the worldwide one. It's one of the priorities for the World Federation. I think that's where the challenge is really. The, the mortality rate from anesthesia in some of these low-income countries is 100 or even 1,000 times higher. And people lose sight of the fact that the reason anesthesia is safe in our part of the world is because we have such great, well-trained anesthesiologists working with such good equipment and drugs. If you don't have them, anesthesia is really dangerous. And uh, therein therein lies the, if you want to save lives, that's the biggest opportunity, is to try to advance the standard around the world. And broadly speaking, we are progressing. If you look at the evidence, uh, it, the, the, the general standard of living, the general standard of healthcare is improving. And I think that, that what is needed is a concerted uh, view. I've been very positive that the ASA has become a bit more international in its outlook, and I think it's fantastic what you said at the beginning of this interview that there is a more global perspective uh, from APSF as well. I think Mark Werner was the person who really started that. 
And I think it's a fantastic uh, uh, way to go because that is the best way to, to save lives, I think. Thank you so much to Mary for joining me on the show today. It was such a great conversation. We are looking forward to many more conversations with anesthesia patient safety experts in the future. If you have any questions or comments from today's show, please email us at podcast at APSF.org. Please keep in mind that the information in this show is provided for informational purposes only and does not constitute medical or legal advice. We hope that you will visit APSF.org for detailed information and check out the show notes for links to all the topics we discussed today. If you have enjoyed listening to this show, please rate us and leave us a review anywhere you get your podcasts. And we hope that you will share the hashtag APSF podcast with surgeons, nurses, and healthcare professionals who are interested in improving patient safety. Until next time, stay vigilant so that no one shall be harmed by anesthesia care.